uh, I do have this lasting memory of them just shaking their heads an awful lot. <laughs> uh, oh, gone are the days. Thing, sentences would often start with gone are the days in, uh, in my grandparents' home. Oh, gone are the days when you could just pop into your next door neighbor for a cup of tea. You know, gone are the days when you would know the name of everybody in your street, they would say. There's wisdom in what they, be, what they were saying. I think sociologists over the generations have, even in the last 30 years, have pretty much said that their diagnosis is right. There's a cultural shift that seems to have taken place from an everybody knows your name to a keep yourself to yourself. And I think the leftovers of that keep yourself to yourself mindset are still around today. Uh, for example, how many of you could name the person who stays four doors down from you? I was struck by this, just even, some of you are saying, it's Margaret. No, I'm not actually asking you to do it. Uh, I was struck. Do you know we had the Jubilee celebrations a few months ago, and we had a street party in our street. And it was absolutely fascinating just to see so many people in our street just flock out for this party. And everybody introduced, it was all introductions, as if, you know, first time we've met. Hi, I've never even seen you before. Never mind, you know, met you and talked to you. It's a fascinating thing. There were only a few people who knew each other, really. Why is that? Why is it that we don't know other people so well, even when they live in such close proximity to us? Well, I think the answer is quite simple. And again, it's something the sociologists have come up with. The extent to which we can know any person depends on how much they choose to reveal themselves. Depends on how much they choose to communicate with us, with other people. So if a man keeps himself to himself, we'll never really build even a rapport with him, never mind a relationship. But sociologists are also telling us that we're moving away from this keep yourself to yourself mentality. Even in the last decade, seeing this this unprecedented phenomenon of self-revelation through social networks, particularly online, Never before have people been able to know so much about other people than they do now. So multi-billion dollar companies like Facebook and Twitter have been introduced with the express purpose of enabling you to share, to communicate, to tell other people what's going on in your life. And amazingly, one-tenth of the people on this planet are sharing photos with us, telling us where where they are. Uh, Telling us what they're doing. It's not always interesting, is it? (laughs) But as a result, we can get to know one another better. Even some folks I've been, I was at university with and so on. The ability to just, you know, go on to their Facebook page, for example, click on their photos and see that they've got kids and see the age of their kids and all these things. We're able to just know other people better and send them a message and so on and and try and keep up contact. Proving, I think, once more that the extent to which we can know a person depends on how much they choose to reveal about themselves or how much they choose to communicate themselves to others. And this morning, as we launch this little series in Word Alive, thinking very much about the Bible, I would want to argue that the very same principle applies to God Almighty. That the extent to which we can know God, 
depends on how much he chooses to reveal himself. It depends entirely on how much he chooses to communicate with us. And I would say the good news for us is that he has, he has not kept himself to himself, but has revealed himself in wonderful ways. I think there are many people in our city and across the world, maybe even in here today, who might say or have said, if there is a God, then he's pretty unfriendly. Uh, he's not very sociable. Uh, He's like those kind of hermits, if you like. If he does exist, he just keeps himself to himself. I don't hear him speaking. How can we ever know that he is there or that he wants to communicate with us if he doesn't actually do so? Well, to answer some of those questions, I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to Psalm 19. If you're a visitor with us and you're not used to having a look around the Bible, grab one of the Bibles in front of you. Uh, Maybe the person next to you could help you. But whenever we say Psalm, for example, that's the book that we're looking at. And if you're new to the Bible, pretty much open up in the middle. You'll find Psalms is massive. It's a big chunk of the Bible. Uh, We're going to go to Psalm 19. That's the big number that you see in the text. And whenever we say verse, it's referring to the tiny little numbers that are in between the words. So Psalm 19, we're going to read all of this together. And before we do, we should pray and ask for God's help in understanding it. Our Father, we thank you for your word. That you have not kept yourself to yourself but have revealed, us, revealed yourself to us in, a, in wonderful ways. Help us understand. Knowing that you are a speaking God, let us be a listening people. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 19, reading from verse 1. This is written by David, a king from ages and ages ago in Old Testament times in Israel. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God's. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is God's word. 
Well, this psalm divides up nicely into three easy little parts for us. Uh, verses 1 to 6, what we have is the, the non-verbal word of God. Verses 7 to 11, the spoken word of God. And then verses 12 to 14, we're going to look at our response to the God who speaks. So verses 1 to 6, first of all, this is number 1 for those of you who want to take notes. The non-verbal word of God. God is communicating something with us in a certain, through a certain medium. Something is being shared. This is what verses 1 to 6 are all about. If you look with me at verses 1 to 2 and see how many times it mentions a means of communicating information, a way of describing that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. So God is communicating something with us. Something is being said. But actually, when you look closely, who is it that's doing the talking? Who's doing the declaring? Who's doing the proclaiming? Well, verse 1 says it's the heavens, the skies. Even as you look down to verses 4 to 6, you have, in particular, the sun mentioned here. Now, that's not a worship thing. They're not worshiping the sun as if it's some kind of god. No, we have an explanation for this. It's basically a mode, if you like, of non-verbal communication. This is poetic language that we're reading here in Psalm 19 that tells us that the world is sending us information about God in a way that is non-verbal. We understand that, as I said. We use non-verbal communication all the time. Uh, whether it's the expression on our faces, the movements of our arms, the, the positioning of our bodies, and so on. Uh, we communicate non-verbally all the time. You can get a message across pretty well, actually, with non-verbal communication. So the natural world has something to say to us. But what's being said? It's saying God is the glorious creator. Do you see that again in verses 1 and 2? The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. As I mentioned at the start of the service, I asked the question, why is it that sometimes nature just seems to take your breath away? Well, the answer of Psalm 19 is just very, very simple for us. It's handiwork. It is actually art. It is, the, it is not the product of a random collocation of atoms as some would suggest we the heavens are declaring that we are made that we are handiwork we have been designed for a purpose it's almost as if the skies the heavens the sun the moon the stars are declaring we are made we are his handiwork and actually so are you we are works of art and therefore you are works of art because the bible the message of the bible is that god made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? That even, even if our lives seem messy to us, even for those of us here today who might say that we don't actually believe in God, when we can look at all that God has made, God is still communicating with us. God still speaks to us when we look at the natural world and what he has made. They're, they're, they are it is sharing something with us. And that message is universal. God has spoken through all that he has made. And basically, the message of Psalm 19 is everybody is hearing this. This is global communication. And companies like Facebook would give anything for this kind of coverage that 
that verse 2 mentions. Uh, the natural world, if you like, is, is almost like a universal media message that's been sent to everybody on the planet, like sharing a photo or something like that. Every single person is being told, according to Psalm 19, we are created and God is behind it all. And get this, everybody gets this message all of the time. It's a continuous thing. Can you imagine your mobile phone beeping every single minute of the day? Like, not even waiting for the minute to come, but after it's finished doing its one little message received, beeping again, beeping again, beeping again. It's continuous, the psalm tells us, day after day, night after night. This non-verbal word of God declared through the very things that God has made is a significant revelation of himself. He's not keeping himself to himself. Even by what he has made, he is communicating himself to us. Actually, the Bible tells us that he is communicating enough to us through the things that he has made in such a way that leaves us without excuse even for rejecting him based on that testimony alone. In the book of Romans, in the New Testament, we have in verses 18 to 20 these words, the wrath of God, so that's God's just punishment against those who sin against him, is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So do you understand that? We have no excuse for the rejection of God, even on the basis of the testimony of his glory and his existence that is revealed through his handiwork. What causes us to reject him? We suppress that revelation. We ignore his efforts to communicate with us. It's not that he's not communicated with us. Far from it. It's that he has. But because in our, wicked, in our wickedness, we don't want to follow him. We don't like the way he calls us to live. We don't like the authority that he claims over our lives. We reject that and we ignore it. Even sometimes to the point of bizarrely creating, as Romans says, the creation rather than the creator. Well, this non-verbal word of God in creation communicates his glorious existence to all the people of the world all the time. It communicates that we are his handiwork and that is the very thing that should nudge us towards exploring who he is. But here's what Psalm 19 tells us. Creation tells us enough to leave us, to leave us inexcusable for rejecting him, but it doesn't quite tell us enough about God. That's why the song doesn't end at verse 6. It was never meant to. This is a psalm that's fundamentally about the Bible. 
about the scriptures, about the fact that God has spoken. We would understand this. We were thinking about nonverbal communication a few seconds ago. Uh, nonverbal communication is great, but it doesn't tell us everything we need to know. And you might say, well, what about sign language, Makaton, those kind of things? Those, those communicate things. But, oh, yeah, they do. But those are signs that are, that are effectively bringing about words in people's heads. So in a way, it's still verbal. But facial expressions and gestures are fine when we want to say when we want to communicate that we are either happy or we're sad but these signs can sometimes be misinterpreted what am i saying hello or goodbye some of you are hoping it's goodbye uh, i'm sure but i know it's hello uh, i'm staying <laughs> still here um so try t- but you know th- th- there's a weakness in nonverbal communication i mean we can communicate well in lots of different ways, but try to say to someone, I want to meet you at 12.30 on Tuesday in the Word Alive Cafe and bring your Bible and a brawly just in case it's raining. It's a bit harder to say with just nonverbal communication. Well, this is what's been said essentially of God's communication with us. We have his nonverbal, the nonverbal word of God, but what we need, what Psalm 19 goes on to talk about is the spoken word of God. And this is what verses 7 to 11 talk about. And this is number 2. So look with me at verses 7 to 11. And don't miss the rhythm of these verses. Each line, point 2, is it coming up? Uh, Each line starts with a name for the word of God. And then offers a certain quality to the word of God before finally offering an explanation as to the actual function of that word. So what, it, what it's used for, what it achieves. So let's look at the way God's word is described here. The law, the statutes, precepts, commands, the fear of the Lord, ordinances, and the they words of verses 10 to 11. They're all just synonyms for the word that God has spoken. And the fact that these, are words, that these words are of the Lord tells us that they are his words, uttered by him. They belong to him and no one has the right to change them. This is effectively the claim of the whole Bible throughout the sweep of scripture. Even in the New Testament uh, in a book uh, called 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says all scripture is God breathed. God breathed. And it's hard to imagine a phrase that could more strongly communicate the link between God speaking and his words as we have them in the Bible. It contains his word to the world, a greater, a clearer revelation of himself even than what the heavens declare to us. Clear words, bold words, comforting words, words that provide meaning and understanding in life, uh, words that provide insight as to who God is, uh, what he has done, how, should, how we should respond to him. So with God's spoken word in our hands, again, we're left without excuse. We cannot say God has kept himself to himself. Look again with me at the rhythm of these verses. So we see for each name given to God's word, there's that that quality attached to it. I would summarize these qualities by just saying that it's the perfect word of God. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, what have we just seen concerning the revelation of God in the natural world? 
Well, it doesn't tell us everything that we need to know about God and his holiness, about us and our sinfulness. So you could say, though it's revelation, it's not, it's not complete. It's not perfect in the sense that God's word, the Bible, is. This word of God is perfect. Perfect means flawless, telling us all we need to know about God and about his purposes. And the Hebrew word here. Uh, in the original language in which it was written, says God's word spoken, as we have it in our Bibles, is unblemished. It's without spot, uh, just as he is. In verse 7, you also see the word trustworthy attached to it. That means you can bank your life on it, that it will do what it says it's going to do. You can trust in what it promises. It says that it's right, which means it's a straight edge. What does that What does that mean? Well, a straight edge is a thing by which you can measure other things. It's like a ruler in some sense. But So David here is saying that you, you don't need to determine whether Scripture is true by any other standard. Rather, you judge everything else by the standard of the Scripture. It is a straight edge. It is right. Radiant means that it just has a loveliness to it. Pure means it's not polluted with anything. And link that with what David says in verse 10, that it's like gold so it's valuable but better than that it's like pure gold so it's been refined and refined and refined it's it's unpolluted it's perfect it is so valuable so valuable verse 9 says it's sure and altogether righteous that is every single one of them every sentence that God has spoken equally sure equally perfect equally trustworthy God has revealed himself He has not kept himself to himself. He has spoken to us with great clarity in his word. So that's the quality of it. What about its function? Again, look at the end of each each line. See the power of God in this. Uh, God has spoken in creation to communicate his existence, spoken in his perfect word to communicate his character and his purpose. Now, don't miss the target of this word. Our souls. You see that? We are his target audience. This word is powerful. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That word soul, again, in the original language, refers to your identity. It is your whole self. It is, it is who you are. And the Bible is straightforward when it says to the people of this world, This is true. This is right, but you must understand about yourselves that because of wickedness, as it mentioned in Romans 1, and sinfulness, the people of this world are hard to rouse. That's why we need revived. I used to work in a hospital, and sometimes you'd have patients who would come in, uh, sadly, with, drug, uh, with a drug overdose. Um, so those who were sedated on opiates, for example, would be just completely unconscious they would have no clue as to what was happening to them and no idea that they were actually in a life or death situation and that they could stop breathing at any point Uh, and again if the effects of the drugs taken were not reversed and if they were not roused then probably that would be what would happen to them so to rouse them you'd try and do different things you would speak very loudly to them you would shake the shoulders to try and rouse them both uh, in both of those ways. Um, if that didn't work, you, you got to twist their ear. Uh, you did. It's allowed. Don't, uh, <laughs> uh, 
you, you twist their earlobe, just a little bit of pain response, that's, that's part of the diagnosis. And if that didn't work, the doctor would come along and inject something called Narcan, which reversed the effects of the opiates, of the drugs, and sometimes Narcan would just work really, really quickly. Really quickly. And what Narcan did for the patient, God's word, in a sense, does for us. It rouses us and revives us and awakens us to the reality of the condition of our souls and what we need. And listen, according to what God has said in his word, this human soul is is hard to rouse. We need revived or we could be in danger of something worse even than respiratory arrest. And God's word acts something like that Narcan injection. And it has the power to revive our souls, awaken us to the reality of our condition that we might recover. To waken us up to the reality of who God is and what he has done for us. That's the purpose of this reviving. It revives the soul, God's word. It makes wise the simple, is what verse 7 goes on to say. And how we all need that. Uh, I don't know about you, you, but when I think about who I was 10 years ago, I, I thought I knew it all. Do you, ever, do you ever think like that? You look back to yourself 10 years ago, you, you thought you knew it all, but now you look back and think, what was I thinking? How could I, how could I have thought that? How, how could I, I wonder why I ever believed that? Or how did I ever think that that was cool? Or... You know, those kind of things. I'm sure we all think like that in some way. And I'm sure we all, in some ways, feel the embarrassment (laughs) of looking back at those times. But do you realize what this means? That your present self is a fool to your 10 years from now self. Which means just now, we're all fools. And we have a tendency, you see, I think, to, to follow fads, to follow phases, to be driven by cultural trends. We might even again listen to the stories of our grandparents and think, man, it sounds like medieval Britain, the way they, the way they talk and the, way they, the things that they talk about. But it's interesting, even just thinking about them that, and about our society today, where again, collectively, we almost think, we've got it made. I mean, we're the most intellectual you know, society, etc., we think of what's acceptable to us and what's unacceptable based on our standards and the culture of today. But actually, probably in about 25, 50 years' time, when our grandkids, our great-grandkids are talking, they're going to be looking back at us and saying, man, hear what they're talking about. It's like medieval Britain all over again. What I'm trying to say is that cultural trends and things that are just culturally acceptable can just so quickly go out of fashion But here we have God's spoken word that is a wisdom that transcends the ages. It is timelessly relevant. It's proven by the fact that it still speaks to our hearts today. And it gives a wisdom to us concerning life, concerning our walk in life that is unsurpassable. Why? Because it communicates the very mind of God to us. The God who created us and knows exactly how we function. And knows exactly what we need to make life work. 
it has the power to make us wise, you see, because it has God's instruction for all of life, wisdom for salvation and rescue from sin in these pages. There is wisdom for those who sin and need help, wisdom for those who are in struggling marriages, wisdom for those who who are trying to bring up their kids well, wisdom for those who can't stop lying, wisdom for those who want to do good to others, but so often just find themselves pleasing themselves. It has wisdom, perfect wisdom in it. We could go on and on with the various elements of verses 7 to 11. gives joy to the heart, gives light to the eyes. The word of God, powerful in in that it has the power to completely even rewire the desires of our hearts, that we find our greatest joy in him and in his word. To see that God's word has the power to let us see clearly because it sheds such light on the truth and shows us what is false. What we have in Psalm 19 is, in verses 1 to 6, the thing that theologians would call general revelation, okay? This is the non-verbal word of God uttered in creation. It tells us that God exists. Verses 7 to 11 is what's called special revelation, in that we have the spoken word of God dictated to us in the Bible. God has spoken in these ways that we can know him and that we can be revived. Now, you might be sitting there asking the question, so what? What what does it matter? Or how should I respond to the very things that you're telling me about the non-verbal communication of God, the verbal, the spoken word of God? Well, this is what verses 12 to 14 tell us. Our response to the God who speaks. God speaks to us to elicit a response. He reveals himself to us so that we might rightly respond to him. Uh, I, love, I love the mirror downstairs. Not looking in it to see myself. I mean, you'll see when you're going out. There's a mirror downstairs with a verse, a couple of verses from James, the book of James on it, which says, it is an utterly foolish thing to look into the words like you look in a mirror and walk away and immediately forget what it told you about yourself. When we read the Bible, it's like looking in a mirror. We see ourselves in true light. As we understand God's holiness and understand what he says about sin and the sinful condition of the human heart, we see ourselves and are confronted with our own sinfulness. David says when he looks into the scriptures in verses 12 to 14, he sees errors. So I think, speaking about inadvertent sins that he has committed, hidden faults, even sinful practices that he might not be even aware of. And then there's those willful sins, the great transgressions he talks about, sins that David wanted to commit, okay? And what does David do? As he sees himself... As he really is, as he looks into God's perfect word and alongside that sees God in his beauty and in his holiness. David prays. He approaches God, even after he is aware of his sin, which is amazing because I think in our culture, some people would think that if you do this, if you are 
if you come face to face with God, if you like, and become conscious of your sinfulness before him, then our inclination is actually to turn and bolt. It's to, it's to run away. We sometimes say, or I've heard it said, you know, I've sinned, God would never receive me. But actually that's not right. It's not what the Bible teaches. You see, whenever we read the Bible, we can't get away from the fact that God is holy. So completely sinless, completely perfect in every respect. And that we, in contrast, are sinful in every respect. And when you read the Bible, you can't get away from the fact that since we are his handiwork, we are actually accountable to him. He owns us. He is the one who gives us life and breath. We are not, despite the way we live, we are not autonomous, self-governing beings. He gives us life and breath every day as part of his grace. But the reason that we can still approach him despite our sin is because of the very thing that the Bible teaches about. The very thing that is at the core of the whole book from cover to cover. Despite our sin, we can know God to be what David says he is in the very last word of this song. What is it? Redeemer. When God reveals himself in his holiness, when we see ourselves in all of our sinfulness, what is it that doesn't crush us? What is it that enables us to come and stand in his presence even as David says, innocent of great transgression, blameless, is because we can know that God is our redeemer. But even when David says, I don't know even half of the sinful things I've done and the next say, forgive me for the things I've done in the past. Keep me from the things that I do in the present that are sinful and help me stand before you at that point in the future when I die innocent of any sin. How can you pray that prayer? How can you respond to God in that way when he reveals himself to us as he does? Only by knowing the God of the Bible and heeding the call of the central figure of the whole Bible, Jesus Christ. It's all about him. It's all about him. As I mentioned in that little excerpt earlier from the Jesus Storybook Bible, it takes a whole Bible to tell this story. But at the center is a person, Jesus Christ. The one who kept the scripture, the law, perfectly. In a way that we never could. Who offered himself as a spotless, perfect, blemish free sacrifice on the cross stretched his arms out took our sin upon himself and bore it away in death even as he hung there on the cross quoting scripture affirming with every life and every breath every moment of breath he had the truth of this word that it's living and active And as he rose again three days later, and as we see in Luke chapter 24, saying to his friends, the disciples, to give them understanding, don't be slow to understand all the things that are said in the law and the prophets. And he led them through what? A Bible study. 
He is the one who has said in the gospel of John, these are the scriptures that testify about me. You see, it's true that every page, every story whispers his name. And every story, every page points to him as the redeemer. As the greatest revelation of God himself. Because of who he is and what he has done, we can respond. We can like what he has done. We can love what he has done for us. And we can respond. How? By confessing our sins before him. By asking for forgiveness for the rebellious ways that we have lived in our lives, not according to his word. Not according to his instruction. But according to our own. And when we confess our sin and turn to him, saying, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he walked this earth all those years ago, that that he lived that sinless life that I could never live and that he died in my place as a substitute so that I wouldn't have to face that judgment, that wrath, that punishment, but instead could, through trusting and banking everything on his blood and everything on that cross, I can stand before you, my rock and my redeemer, my Lord, innocent of great transgression, blameless. Would you do that today? Would you confess your sin to him in prayer? Would you acknowledge your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him? And would you tell us so that we can help you take the next steps in doing so? I'd like us to bow our heads just now, just take a few minutes in the quietness, reflecting on the way that God has spoken to us. The skies declaring that we are his handiwork and his word in all its perfection and power describing how we can be revived and then I'll pray in a second